0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Veronica Escobar is one of the first two Latinas to represent Texas in the House of Representatives. In this episode, Escobar joins Washington Post Live to discuss her personal journey, legislative priorities, and the latest on the infrastructure negotiations in Congress. Let's listen.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter at the Washington Post, where we continue to mark Hispanic Heritage Month as part of our Race in America series. There's no one better to talk about her Latinidad and how she brings it to politics and the hallways of Congress than Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of Texas. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Mariana. Good morning. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. I know it's a very busy time. You and I have been in the hallways bouncing back from one meeting <laughs> to another. It seems like I've been following all of you Democrats try and, you know, hash out. What exactly is going to happen on a big piece of, well, I should say two pieces of legislation that make up Biden's agenda? And I do really want to start there. I know Democrats were actually meeting this morning with leaders to discuss just the pathway forward. There was supposed to be a vote earlier this week, it got pushed back to yesterday. There still has not been a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I'm not sure if you were in that meeting, but anything you could tell us about where things currently stand? I was in that meeting and
0: here's my perspective. I am actually feeling really optimistic. This is all part of deal making. This is um, what we should be doing as we craft a big, bold vision for America, for our our um, communities across the country. This is the president's agenda. This is uh, congressional Democrats agenda. This is the people's agenda. We've got to address our broken immigration system, the climate catastrophe that has been unfolding around us, the need for childcare, healthcare, there's so much that um, we will accomplish. Um, The, you know, there was a deadline this week that in in some respects, is a a self-imposed deadline that was somewhat unnecessary. We've got to give ourselves breathing room and time to strike the best deal possible. I have complete faith in Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's one of the best deal makers in the history of American government. But I I am feeling very, very optimistic that we will not just get the infrastructure plan uh, that passed the Senate in a bipartisan manner, but that we will get the reconciliation plan that Americans want and deserve.
1: So, you, of course, are a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And, you know, it's interesting listening to the progressives, listening to the moderates who definitely want to have this infrastructure vote um, immediately as soon as possible, and some who are in between. Everyone sounds very optimistic. They keep saying they're positive. That something is gonna happen. I think the question and the semantics is when that will be. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you we were starting to get a little bit more clarification from Manchin and Cinema, which is something that many House Democrats across the board have been waiting for. He laid out that 1.5 trillion number. It's unclear right now if he budgets from that, as well as some other priorities. Um, Where do you, I don't know if you saw that memo, um, where do you stand and where do a lot of the progressives stand as you guys wait for a framework to agree on?
0: I wish we had seen that memo sooner. (laughs) And I so wish that Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, um, you know, would have Begun these conversations with all of us sooner. We're one family. We've got to work together in a transparent way to advance this important agenda to really meet the moment of all the needs uh, that we see across the country and the needs that that uh, our our communities are 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 carrying. Um, I, you know, from my perspective, the number is not necessarily what's so important, you know, however many trillions of dollars, I've never really focused on the number, not in the transportation infrastructure bill, not on reconciliation. I really focus far more on what's in the the package. And so there's a, a lot of different ways to slice this, um, you know, we, it, it depends on the length of programs, who's included in the programs but we we have to make sure we don't leave immigrants behind we have to make sure that we adequately and urgently address the climate crisis we want women to have a shot at uh, at at prosperity in uh, in our economy and that means child care that means funding the the care economy that means uplifting those wages so that you know for me it's more about what we put in it than the final price tag and i know we
1: can pay for it And we will pay for it. So we'll do this responsibly. Yeah. You know, there are just a number of priorities across the board that moderates and progressives do agree with a lot of which you have just mentioned. Manchin, at least for his part, has said he definitely wants to repeal some of those Trump tax cuts, but everything else has to be means tested in some way, which kind of puts a question mark in just how much of these priorities are going to be in there. Um, That obviously boils down to why the Progressive Caucus has coalesced and stuck together and really just wants to push leaders to get an agreement, get some kind of framework on on, on what reconciliation will look like to pass this infrastructure bill. My question to you is, you even said it yourself, I've heard it privately, publicly from a lot of your colleagues, this is one big family. And sometimes families have their fights or have their irritations that they have to hash out. At the end of the day, it seems like they do, Um, but how much of this is a trust issue really needing to know from moderates, specifically those two moderate senators, that you will get a lot of what you are all asking for at the end of the day?
0: My colleague, the chairwoman of the uh, Progressive Caucus, said it Perfectly, I think it's more of a trust and verify issue, um, you know. So I, I, I've read um, and heard uh, Senator Manchin's comments less obviously from Senator Cinema, which is challenging um you know we've've we've, we've got to know where everyone stands so that we can have these conversations and and look to to meeting halfway look to figuring out a, a path to yes for everyone um but i do have faith that senator manchin at least with what what we've seen that he wants to get there but it's we, we just we have to be certain and that's where the verify comes in we have to be certain that reconciliation doesn't get hunted until 2022. Uh, you know, the, the climate can't wait. I mean, we, we've just lived through some of the most devastating historic fires that are a result of uh, climate crisis-induced drought in the West. We are seeing flooding. We've seen flooding in the Northeast like we've never seen before. In In my community, we've, we've seen both, a combination of uh drought followed by intense flooding as well. We don't have time to think through when we will address challenges that we should have addressed years and years ago. What we do need time for, though, is to hash out that deal, and I think it can be done relatively quickly. When when I was in the Speaker's office with um, four, uh, five of my progressive colleagues yesterday, I I left feeling really optimistic about the work that the Speaker is doing to to, to uh, pull together the details of a plan that hopefully can be voted on, and then and then and then we can pass. The infrastructure package, we're all ready to pass infrastructure, all of us, the House Democrats, we will, we will have every single vote. So we can take a breather, give the speaker a little bit of time so that she can bring back a rock solid, ironclad agreement, whether that means a vote or something else in the Senate, and then we can take our infrastructure vote.
1: There have been some members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, of which you also belong, who have said that they are likely not going to vote for a reconciliation bill if immigration in some way is not included in this bill. And that's something that you all continue to fight for. There's a number of senators as well who are trying to talk to the parliamentarian. And and so far, there have been two proposals pitched on how to include immigration and reconciliation. Both of those have been struck down. Um, including the registry extending that date, which seemed to have a little bit more optimism from some members that that would be included. What is plan C? What is the latest on trying to address immigration and reconciliation? There is a plan C that obviously is not
0: as um, robust or as, um, it's not what we want. And so so we actually had a, a meeting, uh, Congressman Adriano Espayat and I are the two co-chairs of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Task Force that is focused on getting rec- immigration through reconciliation and getting it across the goal line. Here's my view, Mariana, on the parliamentarian's uh, uh, perspective. The her ruling is is really just it's a recommendation. We in the House went through a, a markup of the legislation that will be included in reconciliation. Um, we have done all of our homework. There is historic precedence for getting immigration in uh, on the Senate side through reconciliation that meets the Bird Rule. At the end of the day, it is my hope. That the Senate will pass a reconciliation package with our full immigration package, um, and that they acknowledge both the um, recommendation by the parliamentarian, which is is non-binding, and they recognize and acknowledge all of the precedent that, that has been set before in, in passing immigration uh, changes through reconciliation in the past. And um, so TBD, let's see what happens, but I am definitely in favor of making sure that we don't leave immigrants behind. You know, we, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic, but in the darkest of days, Who was with us? Who was it that was making sure that we had food on our table, despite the the terrible personal risk to their health and their safety? It was mostly immigrants. And so we've got to stand with them. They've been waiting for decades for this moment. We cannot let
1: this moment pass them or our country by. So I want to ask you about that, because of course, you know, a lot of people assume that the number one issue for Latinos is immigration. That, of course, is not necessarily the case. There's many things that we in our community care about, like the economy and healthcare. How critical is it not just to pass immigration, but also to pass just this bipartisan infrastructure and reconciliation bill for the community? Because I have heard from some members as well who really do worry that If immigration isn't addressed or largely if somehow reconciliation and and these bigger priorities are not met, that you could potentially lose support from the Latino community. You could lose at least the faith and, and and the fact that they would even turn out for Democrats in the next election. What are your thoughts on that?
0: You know, you're absolutely right when you say that immigration is not necessarily the number one issue for Latino communities. I think it's also really important to recognize, uh, which you and I know full well, but for the rest of the country to recognize that the Latino community is not a monolith. And so you know, in Texas alone, for example, um, you look at. Uh, how much more conservative Latinos are in the Rio Grande Valley versus in a community like mine, uh, you know, just up the Rio Grande, just west of, of the RGV. Um, and we are very different from Latinos in Miami or Latinos in California or New York, New Jersey, etc. cetera. Um, and so, but I, I think one of the things that that is a, pretty constant um, theme among all Latinos is that Latinos are really concerned about the economy, about their ability to provide for their families and to ensure that their children do better than they did and, and that their children inherit great opportunity. And that means making sure that we have an economy that works for everyone and that we have access to great jobs and and good wages. That's the Democratic Party agenda. That's who we are as Democrats. And so that's why this reconciliation package is so critical. You know, we got sent here to, to act. And so we, we need to demonstrate to the American public. And for me, what's personal is I wanna to demonstrate to my community and to Latinos that when you elect Democrats, there are results, results that change lives, improve lives, results that create equity and pathways to success for our kids, success and opportunity. I know we will get there. We are so close. We've got the infrastructure package. That's, that's gonna be a resounding yes. When it comes to the floor, after we've achieved the reconciliation package, which will invest in those very things that will help our economy create jobs and raise wages.
1: I did wanna get your perspective on the border. Of course, this has been a subject matter that has dominated a lot of this year, but recently we've seen Title 42 being upheld in the courts. We're also seeing a lot of these Haitian uh, immigrants, migrants who are now being bused to um, certain facilities near the border. What is currently your point of view on what is happening and what still needs to be done by the administration? Here's what I think is so important
0: for the American public to understand. You know, we've been seeing video and photographs of migrants arriving at our nation's front door on the southern border for years now. It hasn't just been the last several months, it's been for years. But on the US side, our philosophy our laws and our approach have not changed, despite the fact that we are seeing more and more and more people running for their lives and running to America. So the first thing we have to do is we've got to acknowledge this is our new normal. This is our new normal. It's not going to go away. As the climate catastrophe continues to ravage our globe, as countries continue to become more and more unstable, we are going to see mass migration, not just here in America, but all over the world. We've gotta be better prepared for that. And so here's here's my view. I think number one, and, and I, I wrote a, a piece about this, an op-ed uh, for an, another newspaper for the New York Times earlier this year, where I called on the administration to host a Western Hemispheric Summit on migration. We have got to bring our leaders together. That includes Canada and all leaders of the Western hemisphere so that we can begin to plan and strategize for for these changing and ever increasing migration patterns. And this has to be an annual conversation. We've got to create a framework going forward for working together. I just had the um, ambassador from Colombia in my office earlier this week talking to him about this. Um, A lot of Haitian migrants went through Colombia. What can we do, what should we do to help Colombia so that some of those migrants might want to live there if they have economic opportunity? It is in our best interest to, to think through all of this and plan through all of it with hemispheric leaders. So that's number one. Number two, we have to open up more legal pathways and we have to prepare our ports of entry for asylum seekers. We are, uh, the, the the lack of access to legal entry is what's driving these um, irregular patterns and all of this chaos and inhumanity between our ports. So we've got to do better on the legal avenues. And then lastly, um, you know, we've, we've got to make sure that we as members of Congress, because we have a role in this, everyone wants to point just at the president. This is not on one person. This is all of us we have to change the way we process people at our nation's front door. We're operating in the same way today that we did in the 1980s. I will be dropping a piece of legislation that completely reenvisions that process that keeps us secure, but also maintains our values as a country that respects the dignity of human beings. So it's gotta be a multifaceted approach. It's not easy, but uh, unless we begin to change the way that we are doing things, it will only get worse.
1: So already throughout our conversation, you have brought up how your unique perspective, both as someone from the Latino community, someone who has grown up in a border town and really knows their own constituents and how that informs or you know brings a different perspective that may not have been in the halls of Congress for many generations. You're the first Latina to represent El Paso, um, one of the few Latinas to be both in the House of Representatives and of course the Senate. There's not many people um, who look like you who have done that. So I, I just wanted to get your perspective of just, you know, you have been in Congress for several years now. Have you seen the power of being a woman, the power of being a Latina, in any way influence conversations, shape them. What have you contributed to the table?
0: I The values that I was raised with and the culture I was raised with absolutely shapes my agenda. It shapes the way that I approach policymaking and relationship building, and it influences my priorities. You know, I so so as you you've mentioned. You know, I I grew up in El Paso. I'm a third generation El Pasoan. I grew up in a really big extended family. I have four brothers, but my mom had a dozen siblings. And so I grew up with lots of tías and tíos, with lots of primas and primos, aunts, uncles, and cousins. And we were a family and we are a family that's very united, a family that takes care of each other, um, a family that really uh, everything we do is deeply rooted in love. And when I was growing up, I found that that was true throughout my community, that that was who El Paso is. And so the the being shaped with that um, perspective about leading with love, about making sure that that no one gets left behind, about taking care of one another, that's the perspective that I bring to Congress. And I think um, it is absolutely an el paso perspective i think it's a latina perspective um and and it it is my north
1: star you know you mentioned a little bit about your how your own upbringing i know that you grew up on a dairy farm and you've also made your way to be a county judge throughout your career and i'm just curious because you know growing up you don't see that many you don't see many women many people of color necessarily in government what aspired or made you want to serve in public office and what is what is your advice to young latinas who one day want to run for office I never
0: imagined I would serve in Congress. I never, it was never something I dreamed of doing. I never even really imagined I would be in public service. I, I taught English at the local community college in El Paso and at the University of Texas at El Paso UTEP, my alma mater. And I loved my career and my profession and I loved engaging with my students um, and I thought I was set that that was the, the career path I would follow, but I was really motivated. I, I read somewhere that that while men are mostly motivated by wanting to serve in the office itself most women who run for office are motivated by an issue. And I definitely have been motivated by the issues. It's what made me get out of my chair and um, knock on doors for other candidates. It's what made me want to fundraise for other candidates. And so it was just this natural progression and some pushing from friends and allies that got me to run for office in the first place when I ran for, for county commissioner uh, way back when, and it it was a decision that I'm so grateful I made, and I'm so grateful to everyone who supported me and still supports me because it's it's um, you know while while I am the person sitting in front of you on this Zoom today, uh, I have thousands of people holding me up back home who who made this journey possible. What I would say to women who are thinking of running for office is do it. We need your leadership, we need your sensibility, we need your perspective, and we need your voice. Also, know that you're never alone. Um, You need to ask for help, you need to ask for support, and you'll be so incredibly, wonderfully surprised to see how much help and support there really is out there. And once you make it, never forget who you represent or where you came from, because as I've mentioned, El Paso and all those families that I adore back home, they are my North Star. There's nothing more brilliant and wonderful
1: than that North Star that will continue to guide you. You mentioned that support that you have, whether it's from friends or even your own community. We all, of course, remember just a couple of years ago, El Paso faced just harrowing and traumatizing, Um, they face an experience just like that after a a gunman went in with with racial intent to try and target the Hispanic community. How is your community dealing with this? It obviously takes some time. Um, How are you all leaning on each other? And and I, I think what is the message to the rest of the country that this is something that you all continue to face? Thank you so much for asking.
0: You know, the the community is is doing well. It's, it's it, El Paso is an incredibly resilient community. After the August third shooting, um, I will never forget how at blood banks. People lined up for hours and hours and hours to donate blood, to feel like they were a part of helping save lives. The way that folks raised money in GoFundMe accounts to help the the family, the way that our foundations came together to, to secure that money and make sure that families in need got it. I'll never forget the memorial outside of the Walmart with rows and rows and rows of flowers and rosaries and photographs and prayers and paintings. Um, As as painful and horrific as it was, our community does what she always does. We wrapped our arms around one another and took care of one another. Um, Unfortunately, domestic terrorism that is fueled by white supremacy is something that is a a real threat to our country. It's a threat to our democracy, but it is especially a threat to communities like mine, Um, uh, minority majority communities, immigrant communities, border communities. And that's why every time I have colleagues or there are people with a bully pulpit and a bullhorn who spew hate, we have to call them out on it. They, they fuel the hatred in people's hearts. They fuel anger. Um, all the misinformation that is being floated out there about migrants, for example. I can't go through a judiciary hearing without colleagues of mine attacking migrants as criminals or as terrorists. And I remind them that their words have consequences. We need to make sure that we are keeping people in check because these words are deadly. Um, you know, the, the after effects, though, of a, a mass shooting, um, I'm working in Congress to make sure that we do right by communities like El Paso. The, the emotional consequences and the mental health impact is long-lasting, so is the financial impact. My local governments, for example, are shouldering the the burden of not just prosecuting, but defending the domestic terrorist who killed 23 people that day. It, It is going to cost local property taxpayers millions of dollars to do this. That is incredibly unjust, and I believe Congress has an obligation to step up, especially in light of the inaction by Congress to prevent gun violence and to really, truly stop hate
1: crimes. Congresswoman, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you very quickly, of course, this is Hispanic Heritage Month. What does it mean to you in light of what you just said and largely what you hope the country knows about our community? We've got to celebrate diversity. It's what makes us beautiful.
0: It's what makes us unique. It's what makes our country so special. When we think about the Statue of Liberty and that beautiful Emma Lazarus poem, uh, and, and when we think about our history, how all of us, unless you are Native American, each one of us is a descendant of immigrants. That's something to celebrate. And every one of us brings something special to the table, including our people, Latinos in America.
1: Congressman, thank you so much for joining us during such a busy time on Capitol Hill. It's always great seeing you and talking to you, and I'm sure I will run into you very shortly in the hallways of I'll Congress. See the Thanks Capitol. again. Capitol. <laughs> yes. Thank you for the
0: opportunity it was wonderful to visit with you.
1: Thanks again for joining us. And i also want to thank our viewers for tuning into this conversation of course hispanic heritage month is not over yet so we have a number of conversations coming up including next friday at noon my colleague Arelis hernandez is going to be talking to diana trujillo from nasa's jet propulsion lab that's going to be a very interesting conversation so make sure to tune into that and of course if you want to see any more content From Post Live, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com and register for any upcoming events. I'm Mariana Sotomayor. Thanks again for joining us.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.